This is episode 9 of the Zachtronics podcast, which might still be a podcast about game development. I'm Zach Barth, the creative director of Zachtronics, and my guest today is Chris Crawford, the developer of the first commercial computer war game, and a lot of other things. Hi, Chris. Hi there. We're also joined by Keith from Zachtronics, who uh, will be relevant for reasons you'll see shortly. So the background for our listeners is that the next game that we're working on is a war game, which is not a puzzle game, which is what we usually make. Keith and I have been, we spent the last year or so designing, uh, designing this war game from scratch, trying to come up with a, a new type of war game from first principles based on researching uh, the history, like military history. It takes place in the 80s. And I thought it'd be fun to bring on somebody that I've read about but never talked to who developed the first commercial computer war game. And that's where we're going to get started. Chris, so you made a bunch of games in the 80s and 90s. There's there's definitely some common themes, like some of them are more connected to each other than others. So I didn't know if you wanted to talk about your, your sort of body of work and like if there's common themes that group the games together or how, how like how you visualize your, your body of work. The single most salient common theme in my work is teaching. All of my games are fundamentally educational. Uh, although in the early years, I was still just trying to figure out how to how to use the technology most effectively. But, uh, for example, my Eastern Front game was fundamentally about the futility of the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. It was a strategically idiotic notion. It was doomed to failure, and in fact, it did fail. Uh, subsequent games were about oh, the Roman uh, battles in Gaul and the role of cavalry versus infantry. Later on, I did a game called Balance of Power, which was about how to avoid starting a war. So the, the war games, because they were my earliest efforts, had less educational content than my later games. But you still see them all as being sort of educational games in spirit. Yes, definitely. Okay, that's fascinating. That's actually something we say a lot about the games we make, that obviously we're, we're making games that have to be fun or fun enough to sell. But like in my mind, uh, especially now that we've sort of switched to making more nonfiction-inspired games, like it, it's meant to teach things and, and take things that we've learned and distill them into like game mechanics. Yes, definitely. The, uh, the games I did always had... Uh, a thesis about the nature of uh, combat, uh, about what made it work and what, how it failed. Uh, so, for example, my actually my very first game was about tactical armored combat, and its emphasis was on the problem of seeing or not seeing the. Uh, uh, the opponent. It was all about hidden movement, largely because that was the one thing that board war games could not do. And mm. So I emphasized that in my very first tactical armored combat games. Is is this um, tactics? Is this the one that you played on like a piece of paper while the computer told you what was going on? Yes, yes. Actually, the very first version of that was done on a computer that I built based around a Kim uh, system. Huh. And uh, you had your paper map and you got your coordinate. I built two little tiny terminals and you entered your commands through the keyboard. There was just a little calculator keyboard 
and you got your output on what was in in essence uh, calculator LEDs and you put your tanks down on the map and you tried to figure out where the other guy was. So this is like a like a two player game? Yep. Oh, that's amazing. That's <laughs> we're we're both programmers too, so we love old computer details. That would be a fun like installation computer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was the, <laughs> the system was built in, you know, I built a wooden box for it and the players sat on either side of the box and there was just, you put up a small cardboard screen so that you couldn't see the other guy's map. That's incredible. Do you have a photo of that? Oh yeah, I've got a number of photos, various places. I'll see if I can dig one up. Okay, that would be amazing. That's really, <laughs> that's really forward-looking in like an unexpected way. That's really cool. Limited information is kind of a distinctive thing in computer. Yeah, exactly. To, uh, all the tabletop ones. You should talk about some of the the history of some of this stuff. Like, because okay, so I know that you were a teacher at one point, so that that seems relevant to you talking about making educational games. And and the, you were presumably a war game player. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have been interested in computerizing them. So yes. I don't know if you want to talk about that for a second. Just like what your background is and how that relates to like how that set you up to make these well let's see i was introduced by to to uh board war games by uh let's see in my junior year in high school i still remember the guy's name is he was charles zoik and he uh he had this game called blitzkrieg it was the avalon hill board game and we played it all through the summer and uh, then afterwards, actually, in my student years, I didn't have a lot of time for board wargaming. And so I didn't do a lot of it. But in grad school, I started uh, doing some of it. Uh, and then after grad school, I turned to the problem of solving some of the problems with, that board wargames had. And the two killer problems were one, uh, full intelligence. You could see everything that was happening. And two, lousy algorithms. Uh, <laughs> all the algorithms had to be resolved by the players uh, who would consult little tables, roll dice, and so forth. And they were lousy algorithms. So I, for example, while I was in grad school, I before I could use the computer, I developed what's called a nomogram which is a, a graphical device that provides more uh, detailed resolution of certain types of calculations. And uh, I sent that off to SPI, which was the leading company, Simulations Publications, Inc., and said, hey, you guys might want to try doing something like this. And they had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> uh, was it like a graphical, like a calculator, but like, like an like not like a calcul like a modern calculator, but like a how would you even describe that like a visual device for calculating things? Yeah, basically it was think of it as a graph with some curves on it, and you uh, the input values are the x and y axis, and uh, you mark the values down on the x and y axis, and where they intersect is the answer. Mm. I was I was just looking at some World War II Soviet artillery calculators that are just like a sheet of paper with graphs on it. And you like line, line you know, you basically do exactly what you're describing. Yeah, those are nomograms. OK, OK, cool. <laughs> 
That's really cool. Okay, so um, you were playing war games. You were trying to fix their problems. That led you to create tank dicks as the first one, or the the other one you described as the first. Like, keep keep going with the the history of this. This is exciting. Well, I realized that if I, I mean, back then, if you wanted to have a computer, you had to build it. <laughs> so first, I had to teach myself digital electronics and uh, all of that stuff. And I already knew basic electronics, but I had to go much further. And uh, while I was designing the power supply, I managed to set fire to the physics lab. <laughs> uh, they had really bad wiring in, in that lab. And when I overloaded a circuit, it ignited a natural gas pipeline, which <laughs> was <laughs> which caught fire because the pipe was adjacent to the wiring which is a serious no-no and the only thing that saved us was that the pipe it was blocked and <laughs> so not much gas flowed out so it was just an idiotic situation anyway so i learned all of this stuff and, and then i got a kim one single board computer built around a 6502 and then i added ram to it and built interface boards and Oh, and these tiny terminals and designed this war game on it and did all of this stuff. Actually, the hardest part was figuring out the mathematics of calculating lines going through hex grid maps. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was a rather tricky algorithm, but uh, I figured it out. And uh, I, I even did the AI for, uh, no, no, not in Kim Tactics. In Kim Tactics, the first version, it was just two player. But then later on, I developed a single-player version for in Fortran for the school computer in IBM 1130 and uh, uh, did the AI for that. And that worked pretty well, too. That was the version you sold, right? Like, some, or like a version of that for a home computer? Yeah. I later, a couple of years later, I took the ideas in that and completely rewrote them in BASIC and got them running on... Uh, Let's see, first a Commodore Pet, and uh, and I sold that for $15. That was the first commercial computer war game that I sold. December 30th, 1978. Wow. <laughs> so it's $15 a, a copy. How, how many copies do you remember? I sold 150 copies. I'm going to convert this for uh, contemporary indie developers. Um that is that is $9,000 in modern indie developer dollars, which is actually a lot more than a lot of games make on Steam. <laughs> you would be successful as a contemporary indie developer even with that. Yeah, yeah, it uh, it was it was nice, but it uh, wasn't enough to uh, uh, supplement my regular income that much. That makes sense. And this was when you were a t you were a grad student teaching. No, this was uh, let's see while I was a grad student, I was just thinking about the problems. Mm. I did my first computer work while I was teaching physics for two years. That's right. That's right. And then I moved to California and had another teaching job. And that's when I built my computer and got my two-player system up and running. Okay. And then you made the, the, the single-player version and sold that. Yeah. And then you got a taste of the good life of uh, game development. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how did you sell a computer game in 1978? Oh, that's good, yeah. Is it boxed or mail order? 
basically, there were some computer stores scattered around the country, and I did get a few direct mail order uh, sales, but most of them went through computer stores, and so I, I sold them to the computer stores at half price. And uh, basically, I put it all in a Ziploc bag. That was the way you sold software in those days. You, you, it was the software was stored on a cassette tape. Okay. And uh, then we also needed an instruction book, which I wrote. And the map, which I had printed and folded down to eight and a half by eleven, and then there were little the little counters that you had to use, little cardboard counters that you used on the map. So it's actually quite a lot like a a cheap war game of the eighties. Yeah, Ziploc bag, map, cardboard counters. Just came with software. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, that's really cool. That's so some of the games that we've done are programming games that come with physical manuals. And so people like their minds are blown by the idea of a game that comes with like a physical app component. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you were doing that back in the day. That's <laughs> well, that was the only way to do it back then. God, that's I, that sounds really fun. But I guess like the, the, having computers that can do amazing graphics and run a whole program for every pixel is kind of amazing, too. But it <laughs> oh, yeah. still sounds fun. So were you were you able to distribute nationally or was it limited to very local? I mean, were there computer store chains that you could I'm just wondering how widely your uh, your this game was available? Well, there were no chains. Okay. Uh, all the computer stores in those days were independent operations. Mm-hmm. But uh, actually communications were done through magazines mm-hmm. uh, like Kilobaud, Byte, Creative Computing. And uh, some of those did reviews of the game. And then the store owners would learn, read the reviews and say, I got I to gotta get a few of those games for my store. Okay, so you were able to get pretty widespread interest. These magazines were probably at least read across the country. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just curious because, you know, before the internet, games marketing and distribution is just so different. Yep, it's a completely different world. It's wild to think that, like the the rise and fall of commercial computer store chains, right? Like, <laughs> that like between when you're talking about and now, like oh yeah, there was a whole period where there were stores that were dedicated to selling computer stuff that like definitely don't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah, these were. I mean, these were special enough that, uh, for example, I remember a trip to Hawaii in 1982. Uh, and I made a point of going, finding the computer store and going in and poking around and seeing what they had and talking to the uh, owners. And uh, then uh, I was working for Atari and they sent me to uh, Hong Kong to give some lectures. And I went in and looked all at the computer stores. They were full of pirated software. It was <laughs> uh, astounding. You could go in and see just racks of all of this stolen software, it was just universal. Okay, so yeah, you mentioned Atari. So after single player t- uh, tank dicks, uh, what ha- what comes next? That was in uh, December of seventy eight, and the sales were mostly in the first half of seventy nine. I also did a second game for the Commodore Pet called Legionnaire, which was a very simple little game, 
And then in September of 1979, I started working at Atari. Uh, There's a cute story I tell about getting the job at Atari. I was, uh, my wife had gotten, we were living in Davis, California, where I had been teaching. And uh, my wife got a job as uh, an engineer at a Silicon Valley firm, Spectrophysics. They make lasers. And I was cleaning up the house and getting ready to sell it and looking for a job in Silicon Valley. And I I saw an ad, or my wife told me about a classified ad that said, uh, computer programmers, design your own games. And it had a phone (laughs) number. And it was a headhunter. So I called the headhunter, made an appointment, drove down to Mountain View, and interviewed with the guy. And I showed him my copies of Tanktics and Legionnaire and said, see, I've been selling computer games. You know, I, I really know how to do this stuff. And, and he was very impressed and said, this is, this is very uh, impressive stuff, Mr. Crawford. Tell me, how many years experience do you have as a pro- professional programmer? And I said, well, none. You know, I've been an amateur programmer. And he said, oh, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Crawford, this job requires at least three years of experience as a professional programmer. And I said, but, 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 but I've actually built and sold real computer games. And the guy said, I'm sorry, Mr. Crawford. And he stood up and shook my hand and sent me off. So I drove home, and uh, my wife called me that night and said, how did it go? And I said, (laughs) and so she grabbed the yellow pages and said, well, wait wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's see here. And she flipped open the yellow pages and looked for games, and the first entry she found, she said, there's this place called Atari. Uh, Why don't we try that? And I said, well, uh, yeah, okay, give it a try if you can. Next morning, she calls Atari and talks to the uh, human resources person, who is a little skeptical, but then uh, she mentioned that uh, I was living in Davis. Now, Davis is a university town where we both went to school, and... uh, uh, the it turned out the HR lady was also from Davis, and she <laughs> said, "Oh wow, well here, yeah, sure, I'll s- set up an appointment for him." And uh, I got the interview. I easily got the job, and then later on, I discovered that the job I got was the one that the headhunter was trying to fill. <laughs> Had you heard of Atari? No, I had, well, actually, no, somebody had showed me a Pong game a few okay. years earlier, but I didn't really recognize the na- the company. Okay, interesting. I first, I started off doing a game for the 2600, and I built one uh, which they decided not to publish because, <laughs> because I was a first timer, they said, you can only build a 2k game that is the games were <laughs> sold on roms and yeah. the standard rom was had 2k of of storage and but they were just making the transition to 4k roms but they decided because i was a beginner i had to start with a 2k uh game i built the game in only like three or four months 
which was very fast. But by the time it was built, they said, you know, we just don't need, you know, the 2K games are too small. We're going totally to 4K games. So uh, they didn't publish it. That's incredible that they like obsessed over this metric as a way of scoping games. Well, the 4K ROMs were a lot more expensive than the 2K ROMs. Hmm. I guess they're worried you were going to make a game that was didn't warrant the cost. Yeah. Well, it had been just a standard practice that you started off doing a 2K game uh, because you had to learn a extreme parsimonious uh, software design. I mean, to fit a whole game into 2K is, is quite a trick, especially when you had a grand total of 128 bytes of RAM and uh, you had to actually draw the screen scan line by scan line. And it was very difficult programming. And so it was just considered a standard that we start off building the little game. And only after you've proven yourself can you graduate to doing the full size game. Did you work in the offices there? Like, did you have a cubicle and you worked alongside other programmers? What was it like on a day-to-day basis? Well, actually, we, uh, we all had offices. There were two people per office. But uh, we, yeah, we had closed offices. And uh, I don't know, there were a couple of labs where you could uh, run your software on development systems that allowed you to uh, trace the software as it ran, a very powerful mini computers that allowed you to keep track of it. And that was very important when you were doing these real-time code that that actually uh, drew the scan lines one at a time. You needed to know exactly what that uh, computer was doing. So did it have like a visual readout of like what was going on? No, Somehow, well, my memory on this is weak, but it was very powerful. It was a uh, a system that had the Atari twenty six hundred plugged into it, and it was monitoring everything happening on the buses. And uh, you could actually lock it down and single step through the code uh, using this external system. Uh, it, w- it was very impressive stuff. So it was like a like a sort of I guess not like an in circuit emulator but like a like an in circuit debugger that it was manually controlling an actual console. Yeah, yeah, a big computer that is uh, that has the little computer attached to it, and the big computer is controlling the little computer. Basically, it locks down the clock. Oh, that's it says, Okay, you can have another clock cycle now, and we'll, <laughs> we'll see what you do. And so you could uh, step through, and meanwhile, it was displaying all of the relevant data about what the machine was doing. That's super cool. Yeah, it was. But it was possible because it was such a simple machine. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you could fit its RAM on one screen, probably. <laughs> uh, okay, so you worked at Atari, you made a game, but they didn't ship it. Was that Wizard? Yeah. I've, I've, I've heard it wasn't concluded in one of the Atari flashback consoles, right? Yeah. Uh, cool. Okay. So you did that. Um, where do you, what, what happens next? Cause that's, that's not a war game, right? Yeah. Yeah. After that, I, uh, actually several things happened. I was allowed to graduate to the home computer system. Again, you had to do at least one game on the, 
2600 before you were permitted to do any games on the home computer <laughs> because everybody wanted to work with the home computer because it was so much more powerful. Oh, okay. I couldn't, yeah, okay. Okay, so <laughs> I, uh, I proposed a, uh, a game for the, uh, for the home computer. Uh, it was based on a game that I had done on my Kim system and I'm sorry, on my Commodore Pet. And we pulled a little trick here. When I joined Atari, they required me to uh, list all of the software that I had already created. And nobody ever put anything on the list because nobody had ever done it. But I had a bunch of stuff that I had <laughs> built. Uh, tactics and legionnaire, but also some educational stuff I had used during my previous job. And so I listed my game about energy uh, uh, policy simulation and another game I did about nuclear power plant operations. And uh, then I, I proposed to do these games on the 800. And, uh, but because I already had written them down, I wanted money. And so I got $2,000 uh, <laughs> to do my first one, uh, which was published as Energy Czar. And then I got another 2000 for my second one called Scram, which was about nuclear power plant operations. So then, so th those we published and then I got promoted. I had really learned the Atari system very well. I really understood how it worked. And so they promoted me to set up a group called the Software Development Support Group, teaching outsiders to use the Atari to develop software. And uh, this was, this itself was wild. I was, uh, uh, have you ever heard the term software evangelist? Oh yeah, definitely. Yep. That was me. <laughs> uh because I I was the first person doing this and um I had this thing where I would go around the country and I we'd have these meetings where all these programmers would come in and I would give them a pitch. A lot of these people were Apple programmers. And I would give them a pitch, and, and ex mostly it was just showing all the technical capabilities of the Atari, which were much superior to those of the Apple II. And uh, it was really, uh, one of my goals was to get these people excited about the Atari. And so an awful, uh, a great many of my comments were along the lines of, try doing that on your <laughs> Apple II. Sounds and, like evangelism. Yeah. Yep, yep. In fact, some magazine reviewer uh, attended one of the sessions and he wrote a story about it. And he <laughs> said it was like an old time revival meeting with Crawford <laughs> is the software evangelist. And that's I believe that's where the term uh, was started. It's invented to describe you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I really did give. It was quite a show. It was. Uh, it wasn't your dull, 
technical, uh, you know, there was a lot of stomping around. I had one trick I would do in emphasizing that the Atari home computers were designed for home use by real consumers. I would take the Atari joystick and I would swing it over my head by the cord and then <laughs> slam it down on the table and then plug it in and use it. And uh, I said, this machine is built for consumers. So, uh, I, I mean, there, there was just a lot of uh, fun stuff in those seminars. It's it's really fascinating to me reading about um programmers from the 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 80s who in the 80s and 90s uh you know because of course it's pre-internet and it's just you know like this is how you get exposed to a new computer system is you go to like a a old old style revival meeting or something or you know i read about uh people you know like oh i'd heard about uh, small talk in a magazine and all i had was you know two art two pages i'd clipped out of the magazine as opposed to now when you like you have wikipedia and you can you know look up absolutely everything people people like uh discovered new discovered new things just in the most roundabout ways and there was no easy way to get more information after they left that meeting i would think oh yeah you had to have a uh you know the documentation for this stuff and in fact i wrote the primary documentation for the atari 800 there was technical documentation, which was a little hard to understand. And so when I set up this software development support group, uh, one of my primary goals was to write a book explaining everything uh, that we could publish and hand out to programmers. And we did the book and we called it De Re Atari, which was a reference to old, well, actually a book published around 1550 called De Re Metallica by an author named Agricola, who uh, this basically it means all about the Atari. Only his book, De Re Metallica, was all about mining. And it was a very important book in the history of technology. And so I thought I'd be cute and do De Re Atari. <laughs> it's probably only helping the evangelist uh, metaphor there with uh, the Latin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you were okay. So this this was definitely a a very overt teaching role. Oh yeah. And so did you did you still work on developing games while you were doing that? Yes. Uh, on my own time at home, I decided I was going to build a game for myself. Mm. That is, I had in doing the games previously, I had to jump to the tune called by marketing. Uh, They had all of these expectations and requirements and so forth. And so I felt like I am free now. I can, I'm going to build a game for myself, a game that that I would like to play. And I don't care about marketing. I don't care if nobody ever plays this game, I'm going to like it. And so I built this thing at home and, uh, I called it uh, Eastern Front 1941. It was about the German invasion of Russia. And uh, when I was finished with it, I was just using it as a demonstration in my seminars. Look at what you can do with this machine. It had the first scrolling map and it had all sorts of great stuff in it. 
And people were really, really impressed by this game because it was way, way ahead of everything else. And meanwhile, uh, a friend of mine, Dale Yoakum, had come up with a beautiful idea that at the time was considered heretical. He had to really fight. But he said, you know, there are all these independent people out there writing their own software. What if we collect that software and we sell it in our own catalog, not as an official Atari product? It'll be sort of a secondary line of hobbyist software. And they called it the Atari Program Exchange. And the the executives didn't think much of it, but Dale came up with a proposal that would cost them very little money. And so they reluctantly approved it. Well, it turned out to be a smash hit. The thing grew enormously. It was making so much money that the idiot executives uh, hired another executive to take over the the uh, product line, and Dale was reduced to a, a secondary position. It was just idiotic. Uh, <laughs> but before this happened, Dale uh, asked me, you know, hey, could I sell your program? And I said, yeah, sure, sure. And I ended up making a ton of money out of that thing. It sold like hotcakes. It it was it was one of the uh, programs that sold Atari's hardware uh, because it was everybody used it to show off what the uh, machine could do. So anyway, that was a big hit. Okay, so I have a bunch of questions based off. <laughs> so okay, so what was the business arrangement like? So like the standard now is that if you sell a game on Steam or any other store, right, or Apple or like Android, they they give you 70%, they take 30%, that like that kind of relationship. Like what was what was the business relationship like with this Atari program exchange? It was nowhere near as good as nowadays, but that was because they had to do a lot more to sell the product. That is Steam just sticks it on their server. Uh, the Atari Program Exchange was still selling products by mail. Mm. And so they had a catalog and a mailing list, and they had to ship out catalogs every, uh, you know, every three months. And they had to manufacture these things, which means duplicating tapes and, uh, uh, you know, ma- manufacturing the manuals and making... Uh, uh, you know, shipping them in envelopes and all of that. This was expensive stuff. And so I think my royalty was only 10 or 20%. Okay. So it's much more of like a, like a publisher relationship. Yeah. That they have to, they're putting up a, like you're just writing software. They're putting up a ton of expenses to actually manufacture, distribute market, all of that. Interesting. How did they, did they do like on-demand marketing or did they just kind of take a guess at how many copies of a program they were going to sell and like manufacture like a thousand of them. Yeah, yeah, they they did it a, a you know a chunk at a time. They could afford to keep inventory, and they actually the cost of doing there was no big advantage to making ten thousand copies over one thousand. The uh, uh, the manuals were mostly uh, you know quick print things, so it was all very. Uh, very low-key stuff. Okay. So very, very agile in modern terms. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Um, 
So you made this game for yourself, and then surprise, surprise, people wanted it. Were, were you surprised that that people wanted this game? Like you said, this this is like a this was more popular than the other things you had made for Atari at Atari. Yeah, yeah. Right? It sold better than the other games I did. <laughs> so, why do you think that was? Um, because I didn't listen to marketing. <laughs> I mean, see, marketing was basing everything on ancient history, and what and i represented somebody more typical of the consumer in those days uh and that's what dale knew dale was also an actual computer user and he had a good feel for what consumers wanted which is why he was so successful basically we had all of these experienced executives who knew all about selling detergent and uh <laughs> and so forth and they had no idea how to handle i mean nobody knew what was going on with these personal computers they were this was all brand new it's it's difficult for you guys to appreciate just how weird this all was back then we were making it up as we went along and there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of really, really stupid ideas. Atari spent a ton of money on this educational thing that involved these cassettes that had uh, were they had a lot of audio and a lot of print stuff and some very stupid little programs to go along with them. They spent millions on that. and yeah. it was a total waste. Uh, because nobody knew, what do you do with these machines? Well, we didn't know. It's a, the whole idea of a spreadsheet, for example, was considered to be very, well, I mean, nobody had thought of that before, really. There were a lot of things that just had to be invented. That's wild. Okay, so you made Eastern Front 1941. It's a hit. Where do you go from there? Well, at that point, I had uh, I'd also done a couple of games for Avalon Hill while that was selling, and then the computer games. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I did Tactics and Legionnaire for Avalon Hill. Mm, okay. I did new, much improved versions for them, and. Uh, Do you still work at Atari at this point, or have you gone yeah. indie? No, no, I was still working at Atari. Okay. So you're working at Atari and you're developing and selling indie games like on the side. Yeah, the reason why was that I wasn't actually doing any games programming for Atari. Ah. I was doing first the software development support group. And so this was a way to keep myself busy. Um, just a second. I got a dog scratching at the door. Hello, dog. <laughs> There. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> let's see. And so I was free to develop software at home, and I did. And I was doing such a good job with the uh, development support group that nobody at all resented my working at home on nights and weekends. Okay. So it was it was a win win as far as everybody else was concerned. But then uh, Alan Kay hired me to run games research. And so I actually stopped doing outside work because now I was doing the work 
inside Atari. And so I set to work designing the Excalibur game, and okay. I spent my time doing that. How, how many years total were you at, at Atari? Let's see. Joined in September of eighty of seventy nine, and I was laid off in March of eighty four. Okay, it's so about four to five years. Yeah. Okay. So you want to talk about Alan Kay's organization there? Yeah, Alan Kay. Uh, was brought in to give Atari some real design power. And uh, the very first thing he did was he asked around and said, okay, look, are there any, you know, angry young geniuses who <laughs> are, are, you know, just not, who are, are making trouble and don't really fit into the organization? And everybody pointed at me. And <laughs> so he called me over. I had no idea who he was, but uh, uh, I went to see him. And I still remember he put his feet up on the desk while he was talking to me. And and again, I had no idea who he was. And I was thinking, who the hell is this guy anyway? And he just sort of talked about random things and he asked me what I thought were random questions and uh then said okay great great and then I left after about an hour and a half and I I remember shaking my head as I was leaving what was that about anyway why did this guy want to talk to me and uh, a few days later uh, he called me and said, uh, would you like to join research? I'd like you to run my games research program. And uh, I said, yeah, sure, I'll be happy to do that. So uh, I went off and, and joined him, and he was uh, – basically, I was his first hire. And, uh, well, I, <laughs> he was now ensconced in the executive uh, building three doors down from Ray Kassar, the CEO. And since I worked for him, I had to be up there too. And so I was four doors down from the CEO and, you know, the marketing VP and all these other vice presidents. And so here, here's this programmer sitting in this room, coding away, you know, dressed in jeans and so forth. And then there are these executives running around. They really resented me. They, <laughs> I did not belong in the executive suite, but that was the way things were. So they very quickly gave Alan his own building. So <laughs> get me out of there. Uh, anyway, I uh, spent that time building a research group, and a lot of that time was spent training these. Uh, young people. I, I was hiring people whom I thought had vision, but didn't know what they were doing. And so I spent a lot of time training them, making them think about the ideas. I also spent a lot of time myself just thinking about, I remember going, spending one day just going on a long hike into the hills and thinking really hard about you know, what are the fundamental problems with game design? And I came up with one answer that has, that remains a fundamental rule. 
and it was just three words long, people, not things. That is, I realized that games were always about things. You know, you acquired things, you gobbled things, you chased things, things chase you, you pick things up, you drop things down. But it was always things. There were never any real people in games. Uh, and that was, I felt, the central problem. We had to design games that actually had people with whom you could have dramatically significant interactions. And so that became the driving force in my work. And in fact, the Excalibur design was basically a war game that, that runs on the people interactions. And so basically, as King Arthur, you're leading a group of knights, but the whole trick is to ensure that the knights are inspired to fight for you uh, when you go into a battle, if uh, the knights don't really believe in you, they're going to run away. And so, yes, it was a war game and you had to conquer the, the England, but ultimately it all boiled down to whether you could motivate them. And my methods for doing that were, were primitive. I was just getting started down that path. but. Uh, it was, it was the first attempt at putting people into games. The central idea was the notion of loyalty or morale. And so, yes, there were battles in, in the uh, game, and they were fought using standard you know, military war game type stuff. But a crucial factor in those was the morale of the knights and um that in turn was based on their loyalty towards you which in turn was based on how well you treated them and that was meant to be the, the your interactions with the knights the way you treated them at home was intended to be the real meat of the game, but it ended up being rather weak. Mm. Uh, basically, all you could do was uh, honor knights, you know, uh, and I think you could give them, uh, 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 you know, the loot. If you if you uh, won a battle and you got some loot from it, you could distribute it among the knights. Uh, the other thing you had was a, oh boy, this one is hard to, understand you could uh pull knights towards you by saying good things about them and there was a there was a very interesting algorithm a spring relaxation algorithm that i developed for this basically the social they had relationships among themselves and the uh the idea was you had to manipulate this collection of people in such a way that you would get more uh, loyalty from them. How to describe the algorithm? Imagine a group of knights as being uh, little balls, and each ball has a spring that connects it to another ball. And so you've got this big mess of balls and springs, and some springs are shorter and some springs are longer. 
And so that pushes them away from each other and towards each other. And uh, you're in the middle of this and you have to recognize, for example, that these two knights hate each other. And so they have a long spring between them. And so if you pull one of them towards you, you are necessarily pushing the other away from you. And, uh, uh, but you could not in any way affect their relationship with each other. So you just had to cope with this. And so, I don't know, that was actually a very sophisticated idea, but the implementation did not come across to the player very clearly. And so it, it didn't really work. Interesting. That definitely sounds like something that someone with a physics background would come up with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I use lots of, uh, it, it turns out there are an awful lot of physics metaphors that you can apply. Uh, I mean, I use this in, in all of my software. Those physics metaphors keep popping up in balance of power, Eastern Front, uh, in Patton versus, yeah, Patton versus Rommel, uh, there was a, a field concept that I used that uh, each unit radiated a field that affected other units, and that gave me the algorithm for the artificial intelligence, which worked very well. Interesting. Okay, we should talk about those war games too, because we're, you know, we're still in the 80s, and your, your story definitely goes further than that. So, like, what what comes after Atari? So you get laid off. Yeah, I get laid off, and uh, I decide, okay, I'm going to move to the Macintosh. I actually had to make a very difficult decision because the Amiga people approached me, and they really wanted me to do for the Amiga what I did for the Atari, to be the Mm -hmm. software evangelist. And that was a tough decision because the Amiga looked like a lot more fun than the Mac. Still, I made the judgment that the Mac was going to be more successful than the Amiga, and that turned out to be the correct judgment. Definitely. (laughs) And so I uh, started learning the Mac, and you programmed it in Pascal, and God, I hated Pascal because it was a really fascist language. (laughs) But then I was used to the idea of you know, controlling it right down to the hardware level with the Atari, you took over the entire machine. Whereas in the Mac, you were a guest of the operating system. And I rather (laughs) resented that. Anyway, so I learned the Mac and I'd always wanted to do a game, a peace game, a game about how you avoid getting into a war. And so I started designing that and it was a very difficult design and I had a lot of problems doing it. Uh, I found a, it turns out I, well, I found a publisher, Random House, and uh, they were interested in it, but then they, uh, they hired some fellow to act as my producer and, he didn't know anything. In fact, at one point, I exploded at him and said, all right, let's 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 nail this down. You've never worked with computer games before, and so you know nothing about computer games. You've never done anything with geopolitics. You know nothing about geopolitics. <laughs> and you're trying to tell me how to design this game. And he said, yep, that's it. And I just... <laughs> 
anyway, he was he was really bad, and he would have ruined everything. So Random House canceled the deal. The thing was, the game at that time really was bad. It had a <laughs> lot of flaws in it. It's just that he was picking at all the wrong things. And uh, after he was out of the picture, after Random House uh, uh, canceled the contract, I went back and redesigned the game and uh, made it much, much better. And then uh, Mindscape heard about it and uh, they closed a deal with it and it became a huge hit. Okay. And this became Balance of Power? Yep. Okay. Cool. So, that, okay. So, and that, that's, that's interesting because it turns out you don't have to make a game that's just about war to be successful, right? Like you said, a yeah. peace game could also be successful. Yeah. That's interesting. And then after this, uh, the Patton versus Rommel game? Patton versus Rommel came after Balance of Power. Okay. Uh, basically, Electronic Arts approached me and they said, Chris, we'd like you to do another war game because you're the greatest war game designer in the world and <laughs> we think we could do a really great one. And I actually told them, well, you know, because I've I've been so successful designing war games, I'd rather not do another one. You know, the uh, I feel like I've mastered that. So if you don't mind, can we do something else? And no, they didn't want to do anything else. So, <laughs> okay, I'll go with Electronic Arts because they were promising, you know, that I would get rich and so forth. So <laughs> I built Patton versus Rommel for them. And uh, I don't know, it was... It was a good game. It had a lot of nice ideas in it, but uh, it wasn't a great game because it was, I didn't do it for myself. I did it for them. They were, uh, you know, they were trying to tell me how to design the game and I knew how to design the game. And so anyway, we did it and shipped it and then I never looked back. Okay. And then is there anything else interesting that you want to talk about that kind of comes after this for games you've released? Oh, yeah, I did a bunch of other games, none of which had a war game component. Um, well, no, there was one game I did a, uh, it was never published, but I did work on a new uh, Arthurian game. In fact, I've made about four different attempts to do a King Arthur game. And each one of them had some sort of war game in it, but the war game was always a secondary aspect of it. It was a, uh, it was sort of the acid test of everything else. In fact, I just recently, uh, here's an interesting idea. I've always felt that a, the real test of genius level design is doing a war game that doesn't have a map in it. And in fact, I did that uh, late last year. I've been working on a, a interactive storytelling game about King Arthur, and one segment of it is a battle that you fight. And the whole trick on the battle is there's no graphics, no map. It's all done in text, and basically, what happens is you are you 
go to a, you go to the part of the battle where one of your knights is fighting and you evaluate the situation and you have to react to whatever is happening there as in uh, bring in reinforcements or castigate the knight or uh, uh, pull him back so that he can have a chance for his men to rest. Uh, it's, it's all in the people management of the battle, not the spatial maneuvering of the units. So you're like walking from one part of the front line to another and talking to the... You're galloping around on your horse. And, right. But I mean, uh, as opposed to the, the, the God perspective that strategy games usually have, like you're, yeah. you're the commander, but you are in a specific place. Yeah. In this one, you are uh, bouncing around from one night to another, and uh, you're getting battlefield reports and deciding, uh-oh, I better go over and help uh, Sagramor, whatever. He's in trouble, needs some help. I'll go over and, you know, maybe I'll commit some of my, uh, my own men to uh, help bolster the line there. This reminds me, Keith, of that, that really simple game in the Dunnigan's book. Uh, with the like the decks of cards. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a, a book about there's, there's numerous books about war games, but there's one that's by uh, somebody who it's teaches Saban's book, like, war it? theory at like a college. I think it's Sabins. I don't. Oh, think was I that what it was? Saban? Yeah. Okay. This isn't Jim Dunnigan, is it? I, I'm mixing up the names because I also read that book because it's recommended okay. in the back of your book, right? So there's yeah, Saban writes the the war game books. Okay, you should explain it because I'm that already book, messed it I don't up. think I read Dunnigan's book. It's um the book is called Simulating War. Yeah. Do you know this guy, Saban? Have you ever heard of him or No. Can't no, remember I his have. first name. He's a, a professor and he teaches military history by having his students play war games and make their own war games. Hmm. And he's a he's a big proponent of very simple definitely not computerized war games because he likes that you can play them and modify them you know on the fly to explore different ideas or different kinds of dynamics you know like what if artillery was more powerful or less powerful or what if you know armies were more or less coordinated you know he's really into this uh design as a way of learning not just make an educational game and like put it in front of kids or something yes yes the uh uh, definitely the best way to learn this stuff is to actually design the thing. I made a few attempts in that direction. For example, oh, 30 years ago, I did a game for Earth Day about environmental issues in which there was this complicated network of linear equations for things like air pollution and nuclear power and uh, how many people were dying from air pollution and so forth. And I actually had a section in there that allowed you to go in and alter the constants in the linear equations. So you could make nuclear power plants more dangerous. You could make air pollution safer you could, uh, there were outright values for human life. You could say, well, you know, people who live in poor countries, they're not really worth as much. So if a million of those die, I don't lose as many points. Um, so you could do all sorts of modifications of the internal dynamics. And I was very proud of that because I felt that it really addressed 
the issues of, you know, political bias. Basically, I was saying, look, you put your bias into it and see how it comes out. Turns out nobody ever used it. I was so disappointed. <laughs> Linear equations are probably a little uh, in- intimidating. Well, yeah, but for a the lot way it was presented was actually pretty simple. It would simply show you a screen saying, mm, all right, yeah. the number of people who die from air pollution is equal to this number that you can change multiplied by the amount of air pollution. That seems less scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing I was supposed to explain to you is this this game in the, the one of his toy games is that he takes teams of 10 people. This was in like in workshops in like uh, like military officer colleges or something you can imagine. So you like group people up into tens and you take put five people on each team and four of them are lieutenants and one of them is the commander. And there's there they play with like a regular deck of cards. And basically, the the lieutenants get some number of cards that they can use to to fight matchups with, and then they can go to the commander and say, "I need you know the reinforcements from the central reserves." And so it's all this thing about like which of your you have to the commander has to like look at the lieutenants, and they all desperately want reinforcements, but they have to figure out who really needs it, and the lieutenants have to make their case. And I think you can imagine what kind of dynamics come out of that. Yeah, that sounds interesting. But it doesn't have a map, importantly. <laughs> it's yeah. completely non-spatial. It's just four pairs of lieutenants fighting each other and then two commanders whose only interaction is with their lieutenants and making uh, trade-offs. Very interesting. There's another interesting thing you said about like the when you make a game, you learn about it. And this is we we made three officially like capital E educational games as part of a uh, equally expensive to Atari's failed initiative for educational stuff. And that one was about like starch metabolism and ecosystems and factoring. And I, I feel like uh, like of all the people who like, I, I feel like I'm the only like me and Keith are maybe the only people who learned anything from those games because we designed them. Yeah. Like all the kids who were supposed to play them. I don't really think learned anything at all. <laughs> There's there's actually a, a charter school system called or like set of charter schools called Quest to Learn where they teach all of their students game design. And then that means that in addition to asking their students to write things and draw things, they ask them to design games, which gives them access to like that kind of systems thinking of, of designing games. So rather than just shoving games in front of them, which they also do, they, they give them a chance to be game designers and then like sort of resynthesize what they've learned and turn it into a game, which I, I, I think we all probably believe is a, a great way to learn the subject material. Yes, definitely. Okay, so we, we covered a lot of a lot of history. I'm going to jump into a bunch of random questions. So, so one of the things with this podcast is that we, we always usually talk about game development. And, um, and, and since Keith and I are, are super technical people, we can we can talk about really technical stuff. Um, and so, so one thing I'm curious about is, did you make every game that you did by yourself? Yep. Did you like, did you ever work with people outside like an artist or? Yes, yes, I did. Uh, frequently. Uh engage artists to do the artwork although i did a lot of it myself for example for balance of power i had a really primitive digitizer back in those days there there wasn't much in the way of digitizing but i i had a simple digitizer and so uh i put together a bunch of images for that game and uh one of the in for example I wanted to have a picture of a terrorist. 
And so I wrapped a towel around my head and took a picture of myself. This is all low (laughs) res. And uh, so I could get away with it. And then I found a picture of a gun and I pasted the picture of the gun into the picture of my hand. And bingo, I was a terrorist. And let's see, I mean, you could get away with this stuff when you're talking about images that are straight black and white and maybe 256 pixels on a side. Yeah. Uh, You know, the resolution is so low. Uh, I had another one where I wanted a protester climbing over the White House fence. And uh, so I had my wife uh, climb up on the fence for our dog pen and then I pasted a picture of a sign into her hand and she ended up looking like a protester. It was great. This reminds me of like like zines from like the 80s and 90s, like photocopied zines where people would like paste stuff down on paper and assemble it all on like on paper and then just make photocopies of it. That's like yeah, yeah. shockingly similar. It's very punk. Um, well, I also had uh, a technology I developed in the late 80s called that I called Crawford Oral Nasal Audio Technology. Because, you know, if you're clever, you can make all sorts of interesting sounds. And and then what you do is you speed them up, you slow them down, you reverse them, you, you do all this manipulation with them, and they sound really neat. So... The uh, the first game that Keith and I ever worked on together, Keith did all the sound effects with his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially if you put them through a, a, a sound editing program and you play games with speeding them up or cutting out chunks or, or reversing them or, uh, you know, putting a Fourier filter on them or whatever, you can really uh, do quite a bit. Okay. So total, total change of, of subject. Uh, some game design questions. Um, so when you when you designed your games or when you still design games, like what like what's the starting point of the game design? Always Crawford's first law of software design. The very <laughs> first question you always ask is, "What does the user do?" Okay. Specifically, what are the verbs? What is he going to be able to to? What choices will he be able to make? And so the verb list is the first thing you do. That's the, the verb list is to games as a blueprint is to a, a building or uh, come on, the thing they use for movies. Uh, oh, storyboard? Yeah, a storyboard is for movies or an outline is for an essay, whatever. The verb list defines the software. Do you start with like a blank piece of paper and write down verbs or is there something that comes before that even? Well, there is an early period of my just sort of going on walks and thinking, you know, what is this game about? What am I trying to accomplish with it? What do I want to communicate in this game? Uh, And then from there, I proceed to the step of asking what kind of verbs do I want the user to be able to have? What kind of choices will he make that force him to understand the concept that I'm trying to teach him? 
So what, what comes even before the the going for a walk and thinking about the ideas? Like what's Nothing. the like what the very so like oh. what's the the very earliest first point of a game? Like where does okay. that come from you for know, you? The, the thing that where I say I'd like to do a game about. Yeah, exactly. Um, those just pop into my head randomly. For example, a uh, few days ago, somebody mentioned to me that the uh, that one of the federal agencies is uh, offering lots of money to people to make proposals for games about the coronavirus. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, oh, and like within 15 seconds, I could see a basic concept for a game. And I immediately knew I do not want to have anything to do with the government. I'll spend <laughs> months just sending memos back and forth. But what would a game like that be? And I could see I had a pretty clear vision of it almost immediately. But then after I finished talking with the fellow, I, uh, I actually just put it aside. And then the next morning, uh, I, I went for a walk and thought about it. And then I came back and I wrote that essay on my website, which was yesterday. I mean, this <laughs> all happened very quickly. Do you often find inspiration in nonfiction sources? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I seldom look at fiction as a source. There's definitely lots of people who make games now where it's it's even, like they'll, they'll look at other games and those other games become the inspiration for new games. Yeah. And yeah. that for, for me, that's very foreign. Like as I've gotten older, I've become way more interested in just taking nonfiction topics and trying to turn them into a game, which is how we found ourselves making a war game. Oh, yeah. There. I... I am appalled at how unimaginative <laughs> the the community is. I've got tons of game designs that I've either started on but didn't finish or never really got around to doing. I, I've got I've got a million of these things, uh, and they're, they're things that nobody has ever looked at. I. Right after I was laid off from Atari, I had an idea for a game based on the uh, uh, on Pizarro and the conquest of Peru, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, because that was a very interesting military situation, because the there were no roads. This was mountainous territory, and so everything moved at the speed of walking. And uh, there was a, the road net was very loose or open. That is, there weren't a lot. There wasn't much of a mesh of roads, and so because you had this loose net, you could have people moving along roads, and uh, you wouldn't even realize know where they were until a month later. Uh, and, and so there were, I considered there were all sorts of interesting prospects when there was so little information about the military situation. And so I put together a preliminary, I, I threw something together and it, uh, it was cute, but I, I got more interested in the peace game. So I set that aside. This is going back to um, like Excalibur and things. Why have you made four games about Arthurian legend? Oh, the Arthurian <laughs> legends are 
immensely powerful. The problem is they've been, the current version of them is, is really juvenile. Um, that is right now it's all, you know, knights and dragons and swords and wizards and whoop-de-doo. Um, and I mean, they're, they're, they're not catching anywhere near the power of those legends. Uh, the, the other interesting thing about them, I can say, is that those legends are the all-purpose legends. You can do anything with those. Uh, that is, initially, they were sort the very first versions were standard hero uh, stories. This is before King Arthur actually existed. The ancient versions, the, the very oldest, actually appear to have had the fellow whom we now call Kay was the hero. And he was a big, powerful guy that went around beating up, you know, killing bad guys. And then later on, uh, Arthur was grafted on top of this, and it was really a sort of a uh, redemption, you know, someday our hero will come back and save us. It was generated in response to the Saxon invasions of, of uh, Britain, where the Celtic, the Romano-British people of Britain were driven out or killed by the Saxon invaders, and Arthur had led the counterattack that pushed them back and gave them about 30 years of peace. Uh, and then the Anglo-Saxons renewed their attacks after Arthur died and ended up driving the Romano-British people out. And many of them went to northwestern France, an area that is now called Brittany, because the Britons fled, fled there and set themselves up there. It was empty because a big plague had wiped out most of the people there. And uh, uh, from there, they had the legends of someday Arthur will come back and we're going to get our homes back again. And so that was the main thrust of those. And then, and those legends stayed in that area, but spread through France. And then under, what was it, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine and the... Uh, jongleurs the uh you know the the guys who told the stories um they took that and readapted it to the modern to the then current notions of chivalry and now all of a sudden we had knights in shining armor but there was an awful lot about you know romantic love for for you know the the women and then Mallory, in around 1480, took those stories and put them all down on paper and got it published. And that was uh, Le Mort d'Artour. Uh, and it was a big hit and became quite a... Uh, uh, it, re it really was a sensation. It was, you know, sort of the first fiction novel uh, uh, smash hit uh, because of printing. And then about 150 years later, that had been so overdone that uh, Cervantes <laughs> came along and did uh, Don Quixote uh, as a satire on the King Arthur stuff. 
And uh, then the Victorians, uh, uh, one of those poets, did this very romantic thing about King Arthur. Then Mark Twain took it and made it into a social satire with knights on bicycles. And then uh, we had Disney make a cartoon out of it. And uh, what was her name? Zimmerman. Uh, uh, There was a lady who did a women's lib version. And I mean, these things have been used, they work in all sorts of different situations. Um, they're, and yet at, the, at a very deep level, they are extremely powerful. It's just that they are typically used uh, in a very light ways. But there are some, uh, I mean, like the notion of the Grail quest and you know, why did uh, Percival not ask the critical question when he should have? And uh, the idea of purity and the grail. And uh, uh, I mean, there are some, oh God, with, it shows up better in the Mabinogian. Many of the Arthurian tales had versions that stayed on in in the Welsh version and and ended up being expressed in the Mabinogian. And in some of those, there's some really deep things about the relationship of a son to his mother and the need for a son to uh, uh, kill his mother psychologically and uh, an awful lot of sex stuff in those. There's (laughs) boar, uh, what was it? Turch Truis, mighty boar who uh, goes around killing people. And uh, what was his name? Uh, damn it, I can't remember that one. Anyway, the the young hero has to kill the pig. And uh, anyway, it's all very complex. And uh, but it's got an awful lot of psychological power in it. And I I always wanted to do my bit on the Arthurian legends, but I've never been able to pull it off. That sounds complicated. <laughs> it is. I've got a huge library of this stuff, and it it uh, it really goes way back. To give you an idea how, how old these legends are, at one point in one of the legends, uh, they mention that, they mention Stonehenge, and they mention that the... Uh, the stones that made up Stonehenge were brought from a place in Wales. And they even specify where it is, although we don't know what the place was. Well, it turns out that, uh, and this was in the legends. Now, the thing is, Stonehenge was built 4,000 years ago. And here are these legends that are only about 1,500 years old. That is, they were as far as we know, they date back to about 2,500 years after Stonehenge was built. And uh, about 50 years ago, they did some chemical analysis and they found that, in fact, the big stones at Stonehenge came from a quarry in Wales. They came from one place. Huh. So how did those people keep that knowledge over 2,500 years? Well, it was storytelling that was passed down. The le- That's how far back those legends go. 
It's wild. Keith, your question should have been how how could he only have made four games and not <laughs> <laughs> and not more? Oh, okay. Um I I have to radically change the topic cuz my, my next question has nothing to do with that. Sure. Um I I've I've read You've and you you've so you've mentioned like the essays on your website, and I, I've read you mention like design essays, like that when you need to solve a problem, you'll just start writing out your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about that because I've never heard anybody else really describe that as a technique, but I've tried it and it it works. It turns out, yes, it does. It works very well. Um, what is the technique exactly? Yeah, teach Keith how to do it. Basically, when you face a design problem. You just sit down and you start writing an essay about it. Well, today I'm working on this problem. I can't figure out how to manage this so that the number of these comes out right. Now, maybe I could do it. And basically, you write about the problem and some of you write down some of your thoughts. The reason why is twofold. First, nothing clarifies your thinking like writing. Uh, when the ideas are just passing through your head, they can flit through and be forgotten too quickly. More important, there's no accounting for them. That is, you can't, when they're, when you're just letting the ideas run through your head, it is impossible to compare and contrast an idea you had 15 minutes ago with the idea that's in your head today. That's the power of writing. This is what Aristotle discovered 2,000 years, 20 some odd, uh, 2,400 years ago. The power of writing is that when it's down on paper, you can go back and check and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, back here on the paragraph, three paragraphs earlier, I wrote this, but over here I'm writing that. Wait a minute, let's combine those and, and improve. Uh, writing is sort of like, an accounting system for thinking. And so it allows you to sharpen your thinking and to, above all, to notice connections that want, that you will not notice if the connections are just, if, if you're just letting the thoughts fly through your head. Uh, here's an easy way to think of it. Uh, imagine the salesman who gives you the sales pitch and, you know, oh, you're going to love this because of blah, 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 and it's yellow and it's green and it's big and it's small, blah, 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 blah. And he can give you this snazzy sales job and convince you, or a politician can do the same thing. I, I'm going to save us from all this, all those bad people over there, and they got weapons, blah, blah, blah. And he can convince you of almost anything because you can't remember what he said 15 minutes ago. And so he can be sound like he's saying all the right things, even though he's contradicting himself. And in fact, they do that all the time. That's why when you force them to put it down in writing, you can go back and say, wait a minute here. Over here, you say this, but over there, you say that. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. And that's definitely a thing you can do to yourself. Yep. I, I, I can't help but feel like one of the reasons maybe why that was so useful to you too is that you've worked alone for much of your game design career. Yep. Right? Like I, I'm in a different situation, which is why I've basically always worked with Keith. <laughs> That's how long we've been working together. And so we'll go for long walks and, and talk stuff out. And I'll find that I don't really even know what I'm thinking until I try to explain it to Keith. Yes. 
Yes, you're you're getting halfway there by having by being forced to say it out loud. By the way, there are some there's some interesting issues on uh, the bipolar. Or, I'm sorry, the bilateral brain, left brain, right brain stuff. They don't fully communicate through the corpus callosum, and so there really are, you know, there really is an issue of left brain thinking versus right brain thinking. And the wonderful thing here is that when you speak out loud, one hemisphere can hear better what the other hemisphere is thinking than it would get by just through the corpus callosum. So, in fact, saying things out loud can help you clarify your thinking. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They uh, they proved this about more than 50 years ago with epileptics, uh, where they did these great experiments. They had people with, uh, ep- with cases of epilepsy that were so serious that they were life-threatening. And so as a desperate measure, they cut the corpus callosum, which is the... the thing in the middle uh, that allows the left side to communicate with the right side. And so the two brains were completely separated. And then they did experiments with these people where they'd show something to one eye and then ask them a question about it. But the voice was coming out of one hemisphere, but they saw it at the other hemisphere and they wouldn't know what to do. But then they Basically, they could talk to themselves and get at least half of the communication going. And they learned all sorts of fascinating things about the two hemispheres this way. So, yes, it's good to talk to yourself. Say it out loud and you'll get at least you'll get half of the communication uh, taking place. There's actually a Neil Stevenson book from like 93 that I just read, which is about a uh, a politician who has a stroke and they put like a computer chip in their brain. And like the end result is that like one half of their brain has like is scheming against the other half of their brain. <laughs> and it plays out with like they're, they're, they're writing with both of their hands and they're writing different things. It's, cra- <laughs> it's crazy. I guess that's what that's a reference to. That seems like a very Neil Stevenson thing to to base a book premise on. Well, in in fact, we do play multiple roles uh, that is we have we all have multiple personalities you are a different person talking to your mom than mm. you are talking to Keith yep uh, and so we just adopt all of these roles and if you can unify them if you can get all of these people this crowd of people in your head all talking to each other uh, you can accomplish a great deal more that's, that's wild. Okay, I want to change topic again, because I have a totally unrelated question. But I also want to know the answer to this. Um, so we, we spend a lot of time thinking about playtesting. And because it's the future, and we have a global communications network called the internet, we collect a lot of telemetry from our games about like where people are getting stuck and like how long it takes people to solve puzzles. Um, presumably, you did not have access to the telemetry side of that, like in the eighties and the seventies. Um, so, what, like, how do you, how did you play test your games, and how did you like refine them to be more palatable to human tastes, etc.? First, I always felt that playtesting is dangerous. Hmm. because you'll get it tends to water down the clarity of a game because every playtester has his own ideas about it 
And so you, they're going, it's sort of like committee design. It, it just confu- it can confuse the issue. And so uh, I was always the primary playtester. And to do that, I had to become very good at second guessing myself. And in fact, ultimately, you are your own best playtester if you learn to be really critical and really look at that game from all kinds of different angles, you'll be a better playtester and more important, a better designer. If you rely on the crutch of other people providing points of view that you yourself should have gotten, then you're not as good a designer. The way I've always thought of this to myself is if I am arguing a point and somebody makes a counterpoint that I had not anticipated. Shame on me. Mm. I should have always anticipated every possible argument (laughs) on, on an issue. If I haven't, then I am, I am, uh, I'm not hundred percent there. I'm not a full complete designer. To be a perfect designer, you've got to see everything from every possible angle. And playtesters can provide that other angles for you, but you're better off doing that yourself. With that said, I will say that my next, after I did all my playtesting, I would then turn to just a few trusted playtesters. I never gave uh, let any random people play test because i don't know where they're coming from and i don't <laughs> know their i don't know anything about them yeah whereas the play te- i developed a, a a sort of a staff of play testers whom i trusted and i knew this guy is going to come at it this way and that guy is going to try to break it and and i had a feeling for what kind of feedback they would give me. And that made them more useful to me. Yeah, that definitely sounds familiar. One of the ways that we compensate for the problem you've described is that when we do a lot of playtesting, we always watch people behind their shoulder as they're playing the entire time. And we have basically utter disdain for anything they actually say. And we only watch what they do. Excellent. Because like when somebody you can see that somebody doesn't see that something is in the game or they're not like they're they're unable to use an ability like it doesn't matter why they explain what's happened or like what they're they, what they would do to fix it like I don't give a shit about that right but we can see that they didn't click it and that's like that's the thing that we would have a harder time simulating in our own brains. Yes, yes, that's uh, the best way. If you're going to use outside playtesters, the best way to do it is to watch them playing especially the facial expressions. You want to see Mm, that that flash of confusion where it's obvious they don't know what the hell is going on here. That's a good... We can never see their faces, Keith, because we're always behind them. Mirrors. (laughs) A mirror so that we can watch their expressions. Turn on the webcam and just like have a little feed so we can watch. Yeah, it, it is difficult to see both their face and the screen. Oh, that's funny. Okay, um, let me just look through my questions and see if there's any other cool stuff in here. I, wanna, I just want to jump to the end. So uh, the, the lofty philosophical aspect about war games. So you, you made war games. Why? Like, what, what makes that such a... Comp- I mean, I'm assuming that you found the concept of like, war and war games compelling. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have made games about it just on your own. 
Um, like what what made that compelling to you? Why do you think they're compelling? They're they're also your most popular ones, right? So why are they so compelling? Well, initially for me, what was compelling all came from Vietnam. All of my friends were out protesting, and I thought, you know, that isn't really accomplishing anything. If we want to stop war, the first thing we need to do is understand it. And so I had this naive, rationalist impulse that (laughs) if only I could understand war, then maybe I could understand how to stop war. But at the same time, I realized war is a fascinating intellectual issue, you know, how it's actually carried out. In many ways, some of the best and brightest minds in human history have devoted themselves to war because that's one of the most decisive factors in human history. So, yes, uh, I was fascinated by the intellectual aspect, but I was also motivated by the political aspect. Interesting. Do you have any follow-ups to that, Keith? I'll give you a chance to jump in. Yeah, so in one of the, I think it might have been the Sabin book, um, he he says that war is unlike almost any other uh, uh, profession in that it's one of the few things where it's humans, human minds against other human minds, and there are people trying to outmaneuver other people, and you can have this you-know-that-I-know-that-you-know-that-I-know you know know stuff, which you don't get in, say, like medicine or something, or like and you know, civil engineering. Actually, economics is the one that does that even more than warfare. But yes, warfare is an anticipatory uh, factor. Uh, God, uh, Frederick the Great was the master of that aspect of war. I guess my, my question there is, is maybe that's one thing that drew you to it, since you're very interested in social interaction. Yes. That it's war is always, and especially once you get into diplomacy, it's this it can be infinitely deep of reactions to reactions to reactions, as opposed to just a simple engineering problem, you know, like building a bridge or something, which is you solve the equations and like gravity isn't going to try to outmaneuver you. (laughs) In fact, that was what made balance of power so compelling to so many people, because ultimately your actions had to be based on what you anticipated your opponent would do in response to your actions. It really was about anticipation. I'm going to go to the next, next question. Uh, so realism, right? So in, in the back of Chris Crawford on game design, there is a, there's a reading list, which includes some, some books about war, uh, like books about war that are directly relevant to making war games. And that's where the Dunnigan book is from, like how to make war. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I read a bunch of those books in anticipation of us making this war game. And it's convenient that a lot of them are from the 80s because we're making a game about the 80s and the hardware and stuff and the details. Um, so, like, obviously, realism is a component of, of many war games. Like, how do you feel about the role of realism? Is it more important? Is it less important? Oh, boy. Uh, realism is a very abused topic. Um, <laughs> Because realism is usually done at a shallow level. That is, um, here we get into my stuff about uh, object versus process. You can have a lot of realism in terms of making the tank look realistic. And it has the same, you know, it has the exact right number of treads and road wheels and... uh, so forth, 
That's what I'll call shallow realism. And it's fine if you just want to look like you're you're uh, paying lip service to realism. But I would argue that the important realism is whatever it is you're trying to teach or show your player. And that would be the processes underlying it. That is how mobile warfare works, how tanks fit into the whole picture of, uh, you know, infantry, uh, air power, armor. You need to you need to think about the processes of military uh, uh, operations, not just the surface features. You you don't want most realism is skin deep, yeah. uh, and I would argue that true realism is about it should be about the ideas, not the hardware. That makes sense. The systems versus just the aesthetics. Yeah. 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 I, I totally agree. Do you have any other questions, Keith, that are in this this vein? I know you had some other things you were thinking about. Um, the only other thing that I that I remember, um, this is more of a, a game design thing again. How do you deal with, uh, you know, so, so like in traditional war games, you have like combat resolution tables. And so, you know, there's some odds of getting different outcomes and so on. Yeah. Um, but you're like, there's this kind of funny thing with players where you want them to like, like they want to use their tanks effectively, but you have to like understand, maybe a better example would be your Excalibur, like your Knights on Springs thing. They're like, they have to understand the system to some extent so that they can play it well. But like, do you want them to be using an intuitive understanding of social stuff? Or do you expect them to actually understand like your game systems in in practice, in reality, people like go in and like, you know, take games apart to like understand the formulas. And that's how you get good, get really good. So like, how, how do you approach this if like players need to like understand the rules of your game? Well, I would argue that a really good game relies on the intuition of the players. That is, the player should take what he already knows about the world and apply that. If the player has to, uh, you know, run experiments on the game to figure out what the algorithms are, that's just a puzzle. That's not really, you're not showing them anything about the world. They don't walk away from the game any better. Uh, a good game design has algorithms that reveal something of utility about the world. And so, yeah, I would argue that, uh, and by the way, that doesn't mean that the algorithms have to be realistic. They have to be good approximations. Um, so do you, the goal is that the player never tries to make the distinction between the real subject and what you're simulating and the, or how you simulate it? Yeah, yeah. The behavior of a good game is close enough. You have to start with their what you expect their current state of knowledge to be and then push them a little past that. How much further can I push them? Um, this is a teaching process. Uh, you don't just dump the truth on them um, because the truth is infinitely complex. 
So you, uh, this is very much a matter of judgment, not research. I, I feel like I could talk to you all day long, but I think I need to let you go now. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. This is amazing. Okay. Well, yeah, it was fun. I, uh, you asked some very perceptive questions. Well, thank you. You had very great answers. Okay. Uh, talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>